Welcome to the podcast of First Baptist Church in Wellston, Oklahoma, preaching the weekly teaching and preaching ministry of the church. We are grateful that you are choosing to join us today. Our prayer is that you are blessed by today's study of God's Word, and your heart will be receptive to what God desires to teach you today. For more information about FBC Wellston, please visit our website at fbcwellston.org. We hope you enjoyed today's service, and we look forward to studying God's Word with you today. We are going to start somewhere in the neighborhood. Well, not in the neighborhood. We're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17 we have on Wednesday nights what we have been walking through. We've been walking through different character studies. And so we spent a lot of time walking through the different books of the Bible. And then after we finished and got to Revelation, then we made a pivot and we started looking at some character studies. And so as we're going through, we're looking at both men and women and we're looking at different characters. Now we're not looking at every name and every person listed in the Bible but we're looking at the big ones and what we're doing is as we're going through there, now that we understand that the Bible is God's word to us and it gives us instruction, it gives us examples but also there are people that are listed both men and women in the Bible and through their lives we learn about God we learn about ourselves and we learn about their success and their failures and we have a model example to live off of not just in God's Word, but also through the examples and the models that we have in people in God's Word. So that's why we've been looking at these different character studies, and tonight we are going to be on the name or the character or the person of Elijah. So that is why I have you in 1 Kings chapter 17, because we are going to be looking at the character of Elijah. Now, When we come to these, as we've done in the past weeks, we ask three primary questions. We ask, who were they? In this case, who was he, Elijah? And what we're asking for is biographical information, his daddy, his mama, his wife, his kids, maybe where he went to high school, maybe his address, home telephone number. So we're looking about who he was, and then we'll ask the question, well, why do we know him? Like, we know he's in the Bible, but... But why do we know about somebody that lived several thousand years ago? So we ask the question, who was he? We ask the question about why do we know him? And then the last question we ask is, what lessons does he teach us? Because as we're looking at these different characters, we understand not only do we want to know, we want to know about them, but we also want to know why, we, why they matter, and then what can we learn from them or their model in the Bible? So when we come to Elijah... As far as my understanding, and some of you may um, be smarter than me on this, but 1 Kings 17 is really the first place that we see him show up in Scripture. So we ask the question, well, who was he? So help me out here, crowd participation time. What do we know about who he was? I'm not talking about why we know him. We'll get to that in a minute. Who was he? Mama, daddy, wife, sons, what do we know about him? Okay, we know he's a Tishbite. What does that mean, Miss Levita? Don't know? Okay. Alright, so if you're there in 1 Kings 17, 1, it says that he was, it says now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe. Alright? So we understand that it would be like saying Spence the Wellstonite from Wellstone. Alright? Alright, so Tishbe. Does anybody know where Tishbe's at? This means yes, this means no. <laughs> Alright? So, sometimes in the back of your Bible, 
sometimes if you have, I don't, I don't, I'm sure Ron's does because it's one of them official ones, but sometimes in the back of your Bible, you will have, you will have a list of maps. So does anybody have a map that shows Tishbe on the map? You do? It has Tishbe listed on the map. Okay, so where is it? Right there, okay. Is it on the east or the west side of the Jordan River? East. All right, does it say what like province or country it's in? Gilead. Gilead, that's right. Okay, so some of your maps may have it, some of your maps may not. So if you think about, you think about the, and I'm going to try to do this backwards, you think about the Sea of Galilee, okay, we're thinking about Israel, what modern day Israel, you got the Sea of Galilee, and then you got the Jordan River, and it comes down here to the Dead Sea, okay? So this, everything to the your left, my right, would be west of the Jordan. That is all considered what is modern day Israel. Everything to your right, to the east of that division line, is what is considered Transjordan. And somewhere, if you have a map and it shows the Jabbok River that feeds into the Jordan River, so we're in between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, about eight miles north of the Jabbok River is where they think the area of Tishbe was. Does that matter for us? No, it really doesn't matter for us. But just to get an idea of where he was at, he was somewhere in what would maybe considered modern day Israel. Um, but the problem is, is that archaeologists, as far as my understanding and my education, archaeologists have never found the exact location, the unearthed, the archaeological dig of Tishbe. It's just their best guess of where Tishbe is at. So... 1 Kings 17, 1, it says that he was a Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. What else do we know about Elijah? He was a prophet, okay. But like biographical data. Do we know his daddy or his mama? Okay, I'm getting, I'm getting some heads like this. Some people look like, no, that's, our, that's not our job to know about this. This is your job. <laughs> so, is that what you're looking at me like? Okay, so let me just, let me just kind of, <laughs> so let, let's just jump ahead a little bit. All right, so if you do a name search for Elijah in the Old Testament, you're going to find 72 times that the name Elijah shows up in the Old Testament. 69 of those times, it's in reference to the prophet Elijah. Three times, it's in reference to a completely different person by the same name. So you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 8 and verse 27, you will find the name of Elijah, but it's in reference to the son of Jehoram. You go to Ezra chapter 10 and verse 21, it mentions a person, a man named Elijah, but here he's the son of Haram, a priest that's married a foreign wife. You go to Ezra chapter 10 and verse 26, it's also another man named Elijah, the son of Elam, who's also married a foreign woman. Why do I bring that up? Because sometimes if you just do a word search or a name search or just go to the concordance in your Bible, you may not understand that there is more than one person named Elijah in the Bible. And you might get caught up or confused thinking that just because Elijah is in 1 Kings 17 and there's an Elijah in 1 Chronicles chapter 8, they're the same person. Okay? So really, we don't know anything. 
We don't have any name of us. We don't have a name of his father. We don't have a name of his mother. We don't have any record of him being married. We don't have any record of him having children. We have no biographical data on Elijah except for he was a Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. That's all we know about him. So you may say, well, that's all the Bible gives us. Yeah, that's all the Bible gives us. You go to the New Testament, you'll find his name listed 29 times. And all 29 times, it's talking about Elijah the prophet. But in every one of those times in the New Testament, we don't get any more kind of facts or figures or data about the man. All we know is he was a Tishbite from Tishbe. No other family that. So that's a pretty simple, pretty quick answer as far as you know, what do we know or who was he? That's all we know about him. We know about what town he was from. And in the modern sense in 2023, we don't even have a confident geographical spot on where that ancient city was at. We kind of have a guess. In fact, there's one commentary that, that, that had a whole different idea. So we really don't know much about it. So then let's move to the second question that we probably know a little bit more information about. Why do we know Elijah? Mark already said he was a prophet. What would be another reason why we know about Elijah? He was fed by the widow that didn't have much to feed her family. Okay. Where do you get that at, Miss Ann? Just taking it off the top of your head? No, it's in that chapter 17. It is. That's right. Yes, ma'am. Okay. So, 1 Kings chapter 17 to about 2 Kings chapter 2 is all of the story we get of the life of Elijah. All right? So, that's all we get. So, if you're like, I want to know everything there is to know about Elijah. Well, cool. So, you got 1 Kings 17. And what is it? Stop at 22, I think. 22 is the last chapter in 1 Kings. And then it goes into 2 Kings and 2 Kings 2. And Elijah is gone. So, you're right, Miss Ann. So, he stayed with the widow and the widow fed him. <laughs> all night. All night. <laughs> all right. And, okay, what else? What, what was another reason why we know about Elijah? Anybody else? He's the name that he calls it the Seder Supper. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. All right. He's mentioning the Seder Supper. All right. He stood alone. He stood alone? Yeah. Stood alone where? He stood alone speaking to the prophets on Mount Carmel. Right. Um, man that never died. A man that never died. Yeah. All right. He got taken up to heaven. Taken up to heaven. That's right. And is he the only person that's never died in the Bible? Enoch. 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 So is there anybody else that's never died in the Bible? You sure? There's three. We got, we got Enoch and we got Elijah. I only know of two, so I, I don't know of anybody else. Well, you can count Jesus in the three. Yeah, but he died. Yeah. But he rose again, so technically he's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Okay. So maybe, maybe, maybe yes, maybe no. Okay. He escaped Jezebel. He escaped Jezebel. All right. He what? Called down fire. Called down fire from heaven. All right. Made the rain stop. Made the rain stop for how long? Three years. Three years. How did he do that? Cried out to God. Told him. Or. Let's see. Let's see. He's praying for a drought. Praying for a drought. He prayed for a drought. Okay. He laid on that the child. Yes. Okay. What else? 
So pretty much you just start in 1 Kings chapter 17 and you just work your way chronologically and look at all the big deals. Now, now we don't have um, all the time in the world tonight, but if you think about it, um, like Mark said, he was a prophet um, called out during the lifetime of the kings. And so this follows on the heel of, remember, you had Saul. And then after Saul, you had David. And then after David, you had who? Solomon. And then after Solomon, what happened after Solomon? The kingdom's divided, right? And Solomon's son's name was Rehoboam. And what was the other guy that rose up? Jeroboam. That's right. Boy, you all are doing awesome. Okay, so you got Rehoboam, which would be Solomon's son. You had Jeroboam who rose up. And then when the kingdom split, Rehoboam was the king over which tribes? Judah and Benjamin, the two southern tribes, right? And then Re or Jeroboam took the ten northern tribes, which would be called Israel, and from that time the two tribes split. So when you come down here to 1 Kings chapter 17, you're right in the midst of the two different kingdoms. And sometimes you start reading and you get lost. You're like, well, I thought Ahab was king, but then it talks about Asa being king or Omri being king. And you're like, well, who in the world's king? Well, it's paralleling both kings at the same time. So it's taking them parallel maybe or or synchronously through there. So sometimes you can get caught up which is why it's good to have the poster that's in the senior ladies' classroom because that way you can keep that way you can keep it straight who's where. Okay, so he was um, not only a prophet during the time of the kings, but then right there in First Kings, First Kings chapter eighteen, he confronts Ahab, and what does he tell Ahab? Anybody remember? Now, Ahab's next week, so I don't want to dabble like Ahab. But remember, Ahab is a bad dude, right? He's a wicked dude. And remember, that's where you were talking about, Harold, that Elijah goes to him and says, what does he tell him? He says, there will not be rain or dew. That's big. So not only can he say he cannot have it rain, but dew won't even fall until he says so. So it's like saying there's not going to be rain or dew until I say so. And so he confronts Ahab and he says, what you're doing isn't good. And until I say so, nothing's going to happen. Then you get to 1 Kings chapter 19. And I think that's what Mrs. Nice said is that after he killed the prophets of Baal or had them killed, Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, which she's in two weeks, sweet woman, in two weeks. Um, so she gets mad at Elijah and she said, you're dead, buddy. And he runs, he runs from Jezebel and runs down to the cave, right? And there's this whole story. He gets down to the cave and that's 1 Kings chapter 19. He gets down to the cave and God speaks to him down there. Then some more stuff that happens, but I think as Anne had talked about in 1 Kings chapter 2 is whenever Elijah's walking with Elisha, the successor, and that's when the chariots come down, right? And that's when the chariots come up, and you've got the chariot of fire and the horses of fire, and they come down and they pick him up, and he's gone. Don't know where he went. Don't even know why they took him like that. It really kind of, to me, it's kind of confusing. I have lots of questions about it. And then like you look at 2 Kings chapter 2, and it says in verse 12, as this happened, let me back up to verse 11. As they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. So here's, my, here's how mind mind works. So you got Elijah and you got Elisha and they're just kind of bebopping down the street. How does that work? You got horses, plural, chariot, 
and divides him. I mean, what does it do? Knock Elisha out of the way or the heat? And he's like, I don't know. It's kind of cool. And it says that they separated the two of them and Elijah went up in the whirlwind into heaven and Elisha saw it and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. So we get this idea that he was taken up. Only the second person recorded in the scripture that doesn't die. Where else in the Old Testament do we get a picture of who Elijah is? Why do we know Elijah? So, Okay, that'll be the New Testament. What about in the Old Testament? So are we just skipping over his relationship with Elijah? Elisha? No. Oh. No. It is. I mean, there's there's a lot that's there. I mean, he was he knew he was going to leave. Elisha was one of his understudies, if you will. And so, yeah, I mean, so he, Elisha realizes that he's getting ready to get taken up. Elisha wants the same favor that was down on Elijah once upon him. And, yes. Twice. But he, but Elijah said, only if you see me be taken up will you get that unction from me. Yeah. Anywhere else in the Old Testament you think about that we that gives us an indication of who Elijah was? Psalms. No. Look in Malachi. So it's the last book of the New Testament. Malachi is the last prophet to prophesy before the coming of Christ. So you go to Malachi chapter 4. And Malachi chapter 4, the whole context is about um, the great day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. And this is God uttering a prophecy to the people saying this is what is going to happen. After Malachi stops prophesying, there is a gap of about 450 years of silence. God does not speak to the prophets anymore for 450 years until Gabriel shows up to Zechariah and says, Hey... Your wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a son named John the Baptist, and this is what's going to happen to him. After that is when Gabriel, the angel, shows up to Joseph and Mary, and that is where the incarnation starts, right? So 450 years was silent, and so for those 450 years, you had all of these Jews that were like going, what's going on? What's happening? So in Malachi chapter 4 chapter four and verse 5, Malachi is writing this down, but he's speaking on behalf of the Lord, or it's not the Lord, he's speaking on behalf of God, and he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So if you're a good Old Testament Jew, and you've heard this, So what does that mean? If you're looking for the coming of the Messiah, what is a marker or a sign that the Messiah is coming? Elijah. Elijah. 
That's right, Elijah. The reason I bring this up is because sometimes in our Western mindset, in our contemporary mindset, we skip or we don't fully understand when John the Baptist comes on the scene, right? And all the people around the John, are all around John the Baptist and they're asking, are you Elijah? And he's like, no, I'm not Elijah. Well, we reading it in our Western mindset, we may go, why in the world are they asking about Elijah? Because they knew the Old Testament prophecy that Malachi said, or God, Malachi said for God, hey, the Messiah won't come until Elijah shows back up on the scene. So you fast forward to Luke chapter 1. Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And in Luke chapter 1, as the angel is speaking to Zechariah, and I got to get there. Got my fat thumbs working. As the angel is speaking to Zechariah, he tells Zechariah in Luke 1 and verse 17, he says, and he, this is talking about the son to be born, John the Baptist, he says, and he will go before him, before the Messiah, before the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Why does that matter, Spence? Well, because you get in the New Testament, and especially in the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see them ask John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And he says, no. Well, then they're like perplexed because they don't understand. And the difficulty or the confusion is, is that John the Baptist is saying, I am not Elijah, I am John the Baptist. But what Scripture is showing us is he is fulfilling the mission and the ministry of Elijah. So when Malachi is prophesying back in Malachi chapter 4, he says there is an Elijah that will come. He's talking about a ministry. He's talking about a position. He's talking about the actions, the spirit of Elijah. Zechariah is told that is what your son is going to do. John the Baptist shows up. He fulfills the mission, the spirit, the ministry if you will of Elijah so when John the Baptist says no I'm not Elijah he's not lying but at the same time he is doing the work of Elijah does that make sense uh, that may be that may be kind of I, I may not be explaining that very correct or very clearly but John the Baptist does show us a type prefigures or it gives us a figure of the ministry and the prophecy of Elijah so if you're the New Testament Jew and you're like this John the Baptist guy who is he and they only think is he Elijah and he says no I'm not Elijah well now they're confused because they're waiting on Elijah and there was confusion that took place they didn't understand and sometimes we don't understand today that it wasn't necessarily saying a guy or the same guy Elijah reincarnated or coming back from heaven but it was that type it was that figure it was that mission it was that ministry so you have Elijah show up in the New Testament in the ministry of John the Baptist but then you also have Elijah show up I don't remember who said it in the transfiguration so what happened? Who what? It was okay. It was Charles. So in the transfiguration. So you think about the transfiguration. You got an example of it in Matthew chapter 17. You got an ch- example of it in Mark chapter 9. And since you're already in Luke 1, you also have an example of it in Luke chapter 9. And what was the transfiguration? Well, Jesus, conducting his earthly ministry, decides that he's going to give a sneak peek of his glory and his deity. So he takes three disciples. Do you know who they are? Peter, James, 
That's right. All right. So he takes the inner three. He takes Peter, James, and John. All right. Takes them up to the top of the mountain, Mount of Transfiguration. And there he, he, he transfigures. He goes from being the earthly Jesus to now being the heavenly Son of God. How did he do that? I don't know. The Bible says he did it. Okay? The Bible says he did it. And then the account that we have, both in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that as he did that, there are two other figures that show up with Jesus that are talking with Jesus. Who are they? Elijah and Moses. That's right. So we see Elijah and Moses show back up. Specifically, while we're talking about Elijah, we see him show back up in Luke chapter 9. Where you have Peter and James and John, that's verse 28. Uh, It says in verse 29, the appearance of his face, talking about Jesus, was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Verse 30, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. And why do I bring that up? Well, because it talks about the importance of the ministry and the person of Elijah. So we say, why do we know about Elijah? Why does Elijah matter? Because not only do we know his ministry back in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings, the first couple of chapters of 2 Kings, but he's also promised through the mouth and the prophecy of Malachi. We also see him through the ministry and the work of John the Baptist. And we also see him being present at the transfiguration. Now, there will be a, if you want to, you can find books, pages, reams of people giving their opinion on what is the significance of Moses and Elijah being with Christ. And you will even find some people that will then say, well, those two might be the two witnesses you see later in the book of Revelation. Okay? If you want to go off and chase that rabbit trail, power to you. You say, well, Spence, what is the significance of Moses and Elijah being with Jesus? I don't have anything supernatural or special or insightful to give you except for Jesus said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk with two guys and those two guys are there. So you know what that tells me? Those two guys are pretty important. <laughs> so you think about Elijah, you think about why we know him, we talk about who he was, okay? Now, we talk about why do we know him? Anybody else have anything that they might think about that would tie into from Scripture, Old Testament or Testament, about why we know about who Elijah is? Okay? So, let's move to the third question. What are some lessons that we can learn from the life of Elijah? I didn't know if you'd have any or not. So I, ha- I-, I thought of some that are lessons to me that I'd like to share with you. And maybe that gives you time to maybe joggle your brain a little bit, okay? So one of the lessons, one of the examples for me that I take for the life of Elijah is his boldness. You go back to 1 Kings chapter 17, and you go back to 1 Kings chapter 17, and uh, mm, let's see, verse 1, it says... And i got to get back to 1 Kings chapter 17 before I start reading out of the wrong passage. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So you go back and you think about well, who Ahab was. Ahab was a pretty big deal. Ahab had already killed other people that he didn't like. Ahab had the power to kill people he didn't like. And you got Elijah that is sitting there looking at a culture and a society that 
dependent upon the rain for their sustenance, dependent upon the rain for their livelihood, dependent on rain to eat and survive. They needed the rain. And Elijah gets up and he doesn't say, well, this is what I think or this is what I'm guessing or this is what I hope will happen. He stands up in front of the most powerful man in the land at that time and says, it will neither, it will neither have dew or rain until I say so. Can you imagine the intestinal fortitude it would take for somebody to go up to a person with that kind of power and look them square in the eye and say, this is what's going to happen because God said. We don't have that kind of boldness. I don't have that kind of boldness. I know what the Bible says. But you know what I try to do? I always try to give myself a way out. (laughs) I always try to give myself a little way to save face. I don't want to put myself in the corner and say, well, this is what's going to happen, period. We always hedge our bets a little bit. And yet, right here in 1 Kings 17 and verse 1, Elijah goes to Ahab and says, It will not have dew or rain until I say, and this is this is me, this is my version, okay? This is not scripture, this is Spencer's version. And then he says, Have a nice day, and he turns around and walks away. And everybody's like, What did he say? That dude thinks he has that much power? That dude I think he has that much control? He doesn't try to explain, he doesn't try to justify, he doesn't try to uh, give give them some type of a uh, scientific demonstration of how he thinks all this is going to happen. He just looks at Ahab and says, you're not going to have dew or rain until I say so. And he turns around and walks away. The boldness. Now what's the difference between God's Word in Elisha's day and God's Word in our day? There's not a difference. Okay. Other than the, the, the time frame back then is different than our time frame. That's the only difference. So what excuse do I have for not being as bold as Elijah? We don't have an excuse. Because the Lord didn't give us a spirit of fear. He gave us a spirit of boldness. I know, but that, what I'm saying is so there's a, there's a model. There's an example for me. When I think about it, then I'm like, you know what? Um... What happened? And it's not you all. Oh, we, I wish you all were more bold. I, I'm talking about reflectively here. Why can't I be that? We let our flesh bold? get in the way. We do. We let our flesh get in the way. But there's an example that we have of boldness. He knew what God's word says, and he was willing to say, This is what God said. This is what God told me. And I am so confident of God's word that I'm not going to waver. I'm not going to waffle. I'm not going to be weak. I'm going to stand here and say, This is what God said. And the boldness of a man, the goal of a man, the intestinal fortitude of a person to be that bold to say, This is what God said. And to me, it's not just saying it's not going to rain or you're going to have a decreased amount of rainfall. No, he said, he said it's not going to do a rain. And it takes him back, and I don't know the exact reference, but it's in Numbers. Remember when Moses is leading the people and they left Mount Sinai and they're headed to the Promised Land. And along the way, Moses' cousin, Korah, all right, which was one of the Levites, got a little mad at Moses. And he decided, Moses, we don't think you should be in charge anymore. And they decided to have a little mutiny. Remember this story? All right. So God says, all right, 
So in the morning, Korah, you get your guys, and your guys are going to be over here, and I'm going to stand over here. Moses gets up, and he says, all right, let God choose who is the rightful leader of these people. And this is how we'll know who God chooses is if the ground opens up and swallows them, then we'll know it's an act of God. And as soon as he finished saying that, the ground opened up like Indiana Jones style, and Korah and their tent and their people and all their peeps and everybody went down into the ground, and it said the ground closed back up. And I'm thinking, I would be a little scared of Moses at that point. (laughs) If the guy has that kind of power to be able to say, you know what? If God does this and let God open the dirt and swallow somebody up, and that's exactly what God does, whoa, the boldness. So you get here to 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1, and you see Elijah, he comes on the scene, and what does he say? It's, it's like the baseball analogy, he calls the shot, and he says, this is what is going to happen, the boldness. But then, what does he do when he tells Ahab it's not going to have dew or rain, what does he do? Anybody know? He walks off, but where does he go? He went down to the brook. That's right, Pete. Okay, so he goes down, and you can see this. I'm not making this up. He goes down to the brook Cherith. All right, this is verse 3. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith. Why is he hiding himself? Because at this point, when the rain and the dew stops, then they're going to be like, uh, we need to go find Elijah and get him to reverse the spell. Right? We need to get him to, uh, to, to uh, say something about this. So God says you're going to go hide yourself. Now, here is what... Here's what drives me, okay? So he decides he's going to go down to the brook. That's a description of a stream of water, all right? Not a river, not a creek, creek, whatever you want to call it, all right? Not a tributary. He goes down to the brook. So uh, in my upbringing, a brook was not a river and it wasn't a creek. It was less than a creek, okay? Maybe more than a stream, but maybe somewhere between a stream and a creek, all right, you had a brook. However you want to describe it. Now, you're Elijah. You just told Ahab... No rain or dew until I say so. God says, go over here and camp out by this brook. What is going to happen to the brook? It's going to dry up. And what did Elijah do? He went to the brook. And how long did he stay at the brook? It tells you, it tells you. I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. Uh, This is verse 7. Verse 7 and 8. He goes to the brook. How long does he stay at the brook? 40 days and 40 nights. No, no, no. I'm overcomplicating it for you. He stays at the brook until God says to leave the brook. So it tells you in verse 7, and after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So Elijah's sitting there, and like Matt said, or somebody said, he's the, the ravens, the unclean birds, the, the buzzards, we think of turkey buzzards today, okay, the carrion birds, okay, they're bringing him whatever, okay, so he's being fed by some scavenger birds, alright, he's down the brook, he's only getting to drink what's in the brook, and he's there, and you can think about, he wakes up in the morning, and there's less of a flow of water, and he's like, Elijah's not a dummy, okay, he knows what's going to happen happen. And you can imagine Elijah going like, man, it's time to go. It's time to go. It's time to go. And he's like, but God hasn't told me to go. So not only does he teach me boldness, but he also teaches me a commitment. You might call it devotion. You might call it perseverance. Obedience. You can call it all that. But he sits there and it says, verse 8, and this is, if you think about it in a timeline, if you will, verse 7, the brook dried up. Verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him, arise and go to Zarephath. So he is sitting there while these things are drying up, knowing that this is going to happen. And he sits there until God says, move. Now, 
Why does that matter to me? Maybe this might matter to you. I hope it does. How many times do we get impatient (laughs) and we're not willing to wait on the timing of God? We think this is what we're supposed to do, but it's like... It's like we're jumping the gun, right? You ever get around ropers, and whether they're calf roping, I guess it's called tie down now, or you're watching the team ropers, and they back their horses in the box, and they box, and they and they pull that string across there, right? You know, and when they let that steer that calf go, that steer or calf has to get so much of a head start before it releases the string. And so, if you're one of the ro- the the horsemen, the riders, the ropers on the horse, you can't jump the string; otherwise, it's a penalty of time. Tracking with me? Okay, you can, you can look this up on the internet if you don't believe me. Alright, so you got to sit there and once you nod and they release that animal, you have to wait a moment before you go because otherwise you'll jump the string and you'll cause yourself a penalty of time. So you have to wait for that animal to clear a certain amount of distance before you can go. Well, sometimes we're sitting here and we're like, God, do something. God, do something. Oh, that God's not going to do anything. And then we decide to do it instead. Sometimes you just got to wait on God. Sometimes you got to let God work it out in His timing. God, sometimes you got to let God take care of it in His, in His timing. When God said, do something, let's do it until God says, do something else. So, <coughs> Elijah pulls up, in the, pulls up in this scene, if you will, and he teaches me not just about boldness. He teaches me um, commitment, obedience, devotion, all of these things because he's sitting there. Now, there's a lot more things you can say about Elijah. But you think about Elijah, he is sitting there. And I'm just imagining him. He's, he's hiding out. Don't know exactly how long because it just says after a while in verse 7. So he's there. He knows people are looking for him. He knows it hasn't dewed or rained all this time. And you can imagine like God, you know... When am I going to do something different, God? I mean, God, when is this going to change? God, I don't know what's going on. Imagine the conversations you have with God as he's, he's down there in the stream and he's watching the water get less and less and less. And he's like, uh, uh, God, can I just like have some rain upstream a little bit? I mean, imagine all the things that might be going through his head as he's down there. You know, sometimes when we get off on our lonesome, boy, our mind starts jacking with us, right? Our mind starts playing. And so he's down there and he just stays there until the Lord says, get up and go. And there's a whole lot more there. I don't want to try to minimize the story or or take away from the story. But it's just the idea that he knew where God wanted him to be. And he was so committed to the Lord and to the mission that God had given him that he was going to stay where God had told him to be. That's a theme in his whole life. Because how many, if if you counted those, how many times it said, then he said go, then the Lord said go. Like he's always being obedient and waiting on God. Not just in that situation. That is a theme for his life. That's right. That's right. And so when he goes and he confronts Ahab, and you know the story, what is this, uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 18? They're at Prophet of Carmel. Carmel? Yeah. Mount Carmel? Carmel, Carmel, however you want to pronounce it. Um, I mean, he, he gets there. God said, be there. God said, do it. He did it. What did he do? He did what God told him to do. What did he do? He did exactly what God told him to do. Exactly the way God told him to do it. And God blessed him. So he shows us boldness. He shows us commitment, um, obedience, perseverance, whatever it may be. Uh, there's another lesson that comes to my mind. And that is all the way in the book of James. So you go all the way towards the end of the New Testament. 
and you get down there to 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John. So all the way down there in James, there is a reference to Elijah. And there's a reference about Elijah all the way back there in James chapter 5. And James chapter 5, um, starting in verse 13, he's talking about prayer. James is talking about prayer. James is talking about the power of prayer. And he's talking about the work of our prayer. And in verse 16, he says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then he says this in verse 17. Elijah, same guy, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months and it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Well, Spence, what does that have to do with the life of Elijah? Well, why is James bringing him up? James is bringing him up as a testimony and as an example or a witness of the power of prayer. So what does it say in James? It says in James that because of the prayer of Elijah, this didn't happen. And then this did happen, talking about the prayer of the righteous man of Elijah. But he qualifies it and says there in verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So he's saying he was a man just like you and me. And yet, because of his intimacy, because of his prayer life, because of his holiness, because of his righteousness in the eyes of God, his prayers not only were effective, but had great power. That's an example. Can you imagine somebody writing about you in 200 years from now? And the things they say about you is not how good looking you are. Not about how much money you had. Not about what you did for a vocation or an occupation. But the things that people talk about you in 200 years is your relationship with God. Or your testimony and witness before the people of God. Imagine 200 years from now, they're using you as an example of obedience and faithfulness and holiness and righteousness. Because of your life today. And I'm sitting there looking at that and going, okay, so Spence, let's, time, let's, let's do a little bit of reality check, okay? So what's my testimony? What's, what, what's my example? What's my witness? Some dude named James several hundred years from now is writing about me. What are they going to say about me? James is coming back, looking back to Elijah and saying, this guy had such a, such a powerful prayer life. When he prayed, it didn't rain. When, it, when he prayed again, it did rain. And that's what we see in Scripture. He prays, it doesn't rain. After Mount Carmel and after he takes off, remember he gets back up on the hilltop and he sits down there crisscross applesauce. Remember that? And he puts his hands and he says to his servant, do you see anything? He goes and looks off over the, over the water. He doesn't see anything. Seven times he prays and the last time the guy comes back and says, I see a little bit of a cloud but it's not, it's, it's not even bigger than my hand.
stand and he gets up and he says, go tell Ahab to meet me down here. I hear the sound of rain. This is my paraphrase, okay? I'm not saying this is, I'm not quoting scripture, okay? But this is my paraphrase. All right, so then it says that, that Ahab gets on his chariot to go down and meet Elisha. It says Elijah girded up his loins, picked up his little toga dress and took off running and beat Elijah, beat Ahab down there. And from the little cloud that was smaller than his hand after he prayed seven times, here comes the thunder, here comes the rain, and it comes belly washer. Okay? Because of the prayer. Now why, now why does that matter, Spence? That matters because we're all living a testimony. We're all living an example. We're all living a witness. We're all living a life day by day pointing back to something. And you get to 1 Kings and Elijah. It's all about God. And it's all about the reflection of God. It's all about His testimony of God and His witness of God. And it's an example that I learned, a lesson that I learned of thinking, okay, so how am I going to be now? What are people going to say about me? It's an example. It's a model. It's a witness. Any other lessons that you can think of? Thank you for joining us today at FBC Wellston. We would love to hear from you or connect with you if you will visit our website at fbcwellston.org. Please let us know if we can serve you in any way, and we look forward to being with you next time.